From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. For many in need of a kidney transplant, a living donor is an alternative to waiting for a deceased donor organ to become available. But even if you have a willing donor, like a spouse or a sibling, there's no guarantee that you'll be a match. To overcome these incompatibility problems, an increasing number of kidney donors and recipients are using paired kidney donation. On today's program, we'll learn how paired kidney donation works from our Mayo Clinic experts. Also on the program, what are eye floaters and are they a cause for concern? And rates of colorectal cancer are rising in younger adults. We'll find out why. That's this week's program. Up next. A living donor kidney transplant usually involves a donated kidney from someone you know, like a family member, a friend, or a co-worker. Genetically related family members are the ones most likely to be compatible living kidney donors. Now, both you and your living kidney donor are evaluated to determine if the donor's organ is a good match for you. And if you find out your living kidney kidney donor isn't compatible with you, there is another option available, and that is called paired kidney donation. In paired donation, your donor gives a kidney to someone else who is compatible. Then you receive a compatible kidney from that recipient's donor. And here to discuss paired kidney donation is Mayo Clinic nephrologist Dr. Carrie Shinstock and Nurse Kay Cosberg, who helps to coordinate the paired kidney donation program across three sites at Mayo Clinic. And welcome both of you to the program. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, good to have both of you here. A wonderful topic that is certainly worth discussing. So there are a lot of kidneys going into people who need them, but there are also a lot of people out there who have two good kidneys, don't need one of them, and they're donating. Yeah, that's right. We have a lot of donors who come forward, um, some out of the goodness of their heart, um, that know that there's a need for kidney donation. Um, Those donors are called non-directed or altruistic donors. Um, So those help really feed the paired donation program uh, because they start something that's called a donor chain, which is kind of like a domino effect. They donate to the first recipient, and then that recipient's donor goes on to donate to the next recipient and then on down the line. So that helps to benefit a lot of people getting transplanted. Dr. Shinstock, how common is kidney transplant at Mayo Clinic? At any of the campus? Well, it, it's it's getting larger. Last year, we performed about 270 kidney transplants, and about 70% of those, 70 to 80%, were from a living donor. Mm-hmm. And last year, I think it was about 30% of our kidney transplants right. were through the kidney pair donation program. So uh, it's it's a big deal. Across the three Mayo sites, we perform roughly 1,000 kidney transplants per year. Are uh, living kidney donors, uh, are those kidneys better than deceased donor kidneys? In general, yes. Um, They tend to last longer and they have improved function as compared to a deceased donor kidney transplant. And why is that? For obvious reasons, there's not very much time between when the kidney is actually taken from the donor to when it's actually transplanted. So less downtime. Mm -hmm. Less downtime. That's a good way to explain it. Uh, The downtime is only, you know, 30 to 60 minutes at the most, whereas for a deceased donor, it can be up to, you know, 24 24 hours. So that's a big reason. The other thing is that the donors in general 
the living donors tend to be healthier when you look at them as a whole, but it is associated with improved long-term survival of that kidney. True, because you can't just say, I want to donate and just walk in and don't. I mean, there's there are some protocols that you go through. Right, and our kidney donors do come through a very extensive evaluation. It can be two days, three days, four days, um, you know, for that evaluation. And and it includes a lot of blood tests. It a lot of includes a lot of imaging. We need to see what their kidneys look like. Is there anything else going on in their bellies that we need to be aware of? Um, heart function studies, chest X-ray, and then meeting everyone on the team. You know, they meet with a nephrologist. They meet with a surgeon. They meet with one of us nurse coordinators for education, um, social work. We also have a donor advocate that their role is specifically just to be that donor's spokesperson, per se, you know, to make sure that their um, wishes are heard, you know, to the whole team. So it's a very, um, very big evaluation, a very um, thorough medical and psychosocial evaluation for these donors. Do you ever fly a kidney from one Mayo institution to another? And how long yes. does that take? You do? Yeah, um, actually through the kidney pair donation program, yeah. we do it quite frequently. Kay could give you the numbers, yeah. but we also, um, so we have an internal KPD program with the other sites. And then we also participate with larger national kidney pair donation programs. So we ship uh, a lot of kidneys to other uh, institutions. And, and likewise, we receive in kidneys, you know, that were procured down at Mayo Jacksonville or Mayo um, Phoenix in Arizona. So we do that quite routinely. Um, last year, we did um, between the three sites 77 of these paired kidney donations. And I'm off the top of my head, probably 30 to 40 percent were shipped one way or another um, between. And um, we do use general Delta 101 to ship these <laughs> kidneys. And, and um, you know, so there's a lot of processes along the way, safety measures for these kidney donor organs that they get from point A to point B and safety, and we make sure that they're accounted for each step of the way. And you want to get on one of those airplanes because they make sure <laughs> that they'll leave the gate and get down get to their destination on time, right? I mean, the pilots know the kid is on there. I, I don't know. I mean, we had one just recently where something was going on at the Minneapolis airport where they were delaying airplanes oh. for like two hours, and... We were trying to get a kidney on that plane, and someone spoke up and said, hey, we need to get this kidney from Minneapolis to X. And they actually bumped our kidney to a different plane that was actually leaving more on time. So <laughs> so that pilot may have known. But otherwise, a uh, pilot probably yeah, doesn't they probably, know. They probably shouldn't know. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to learn more about these altruistic donors. I mean, they are obviously unique individuals. Do they have anything in common? Um, I think just the history of being altruistic. You know, many are blood donors. Many are um, volunteers in their communities. You know, they have just always been a giver, a helper. And, you know, these people are very kind of salt of the earth. They're kind of normal people, you know, and, and they just know that there's a need. They may have had a loved one you know, 20 years ago that got a transplant and now that they're older and, and maybe uh, more set in their life and, you know, work and financially that now's the time, you know, to, to do this, you know, generous gift, you know, to help someone else or many other people. Someone they don't know. Correct. Correct. And some may never meet, you know, the person who got their kidney. Um, it kind of is 50-50. Some donors really would like to at least get a name and an email to exchange a little information. Some donors are just, you know, I know somebody got helped, and that's why I did it. And, you know, they're very, very 
amazing people. I've had the benefit to working with these people since 2001, I think, we did our first non-directed donor, and I've worked with pretty much everyone along the way. Do the recipients always want to meet the donor? <clears throat> not always. Okay. Not always. Everyone is a little bit different, but there are some that just can't wait to meet their donor or recipient. But mm-hmm. it, it, you Are can you imagine. guys ever there when that happens? I mean, it must be a pretty heart-wrenching event. You know, I, I haven't really been there when there's that initial meeting, but um, I have been part of instances where, you know, they just have, I think prior to surgery, they kind of do some talking with their family for mm-hmm. members or something, and they kind of connect without really knowing, and that that's really exciting. Have the fact that you now have living donors, and it sounds like there are a fair number of those, has that taken the pressure off? Is the, is the waiting list for a kidney transplant shorter than it used to be? Unfortunately not. Uh, the kidney transplant list continues to grow. Um, and unfortunately, in the last, I would say, five years or so, the living donation rate has actually decreased. So, uh, you know, that's an unfortunate thing. But the, the waning times for kidneys, at least in our region, is, you know, roughly five years. Getting a living donor kidney really helps, helps these uh, unfortunate end-stage renal disease patients. Well, we've touched a little bit on paired kidney donation, and we've talked about the number that you've been doing and how successful it is and why a living kidney is better than a deceased donor's kidney. But tell us a little bit more specifically about how this paired kidney donation works. Yeah, so um, the recipient comes forward, gets evaluated for transplant. They're proved to be a, a good candidate for transplant. Then they have people, loved ones, come in, you know, to be their possible donors. So if the only possible donor for them is not compatible based on blood type or antibody issues, or maybe there's a big size or age mismatch, then we do talk to them um, specifically about the paired kidney program. So once the donor then gets approved, then we enter them into our database, and the magic of technology kind of mixes and matches and tries to find Good donors to match, you know, again, based on blood type, antibody issues, those kinds of things. So you've got this all this data, including blood type and antibodies and everything else, already in the computer. And then the computer would match these two up and say, here's a good match? Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then there's um, some fine tweaking, you know, that Dr. Shinstock and I do, saying even though it looks good on paper, we know this recipient has got very complex antibody issues that we need to look further mm-hmm. um, into that. So you do a lot of work to make sure that these two are compatible. Correct, yeah. And if they do look compatible, then we would get a blood sample from the donor, send it in, and we'd actually mix in the lab, you know, with that recipient's blood to make sure there are no antibody issues because we don't want surprises, you know, right before we go to surgery. We want to know all this way ahead of time, you know, a couple weeks, a month, you know, before we're going to surgery because a lot of our patients travel, you know, quite a long ways to come to the Mayo Clinic, so... I would say then, so we've got a couple of categories. We've got someone who needs a kidney donation but can't find a donor. Mm -hmm. Then there's someone who needs a kidney donation, has a family member or friend that wants to donate but they're not a match. Correct. And then my friend James, his sister was a match, and off they went. So that's the kind of the third group, Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. it happens. Has it always been like that since kidney donations started, was there always like, well, it didn't work for you, let's try a paired donation? Or did somebody get that idea after it had all started? 
Yeah, kidney pair donation has only really been active for the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest. Uh, Mm -hmm. We've done, we have a really actually fairly large program in the United States where we've done about 380 kidney pair donations, but it used to just be, again, living donations started mainly with relatives and then the idea of unrelated uh, living donors uh, became more popular. And again, in just the last 10 years have we done the paired donation. And when kidney pair donation started, it was mainly um, people who had a different blood type or they had a lot of antibodies. And that was really the only time it was done. Uh, But in the last, I would say, five years Mm -hmm. is when we have really integrated this idea of the compatible pair. So these are people who could, you know, donor-recipient pairs who could just go to transplant. But they may say, hey, you know, we could help somebody else, so we're going to go into this pool. Okay, so there's them. And then we've kind of learned that, hey, we can use this pool to help people in a lot of different ways. So now we match people on virus status. We match people, like she said, based Mm -hmm. on their age and different other factors. So now we're finding that we can not only, you know, access transplant for some recipients, but also try to improve the kidneys that these living donor recipients actually get. And that's really, really an exciting aspect that we're just learning about. Despite the fact that you are really good at matching donor and recipient, you still have to give anti-rejection drugs to the recipient? Yes. And is do you have to do less than you used to because you're better at matching? I wish. <laughs> uh, that that is, you know, uh, really a black box to personalize medicine and understand who needs uh, more or less immunosuppression. And there's a lot of work being done on, on that issue. But unfortunately, we really don't know the, the answer. And most of the patients are on pretty similar immunosuppression regimens currently, although we have some ongoing research studies in that area. But a living kidney... Uh, will uh, from a living donor will live almost twice as long as as, as a uh, deceased donor kidney. Well, not quite. Uh, we say that the half life of a living donor kidney is about twelve to fourteen years, meaning at at about that time point, half of the living donor kidneys will still be functioning, whereas a deceased donor half life is about nine years. So, uh, so it is a lot better. Yes, certainly, yeah, not absolutely. Okay, Kay, if you can do this paired donation, I just am, it's taken me forever to figure out how the donor chain works, <laughs> yeah. but now I'm starting to see, how do you not every day try to just beat your record for donor chains? That would just be like well. my driving force. Like <laughs> Maybe I do. I know. <laughs> yeah, you have do. to. Explain a little bit about a donor chain. So the donor chains really start with that altruistic donor because that's the donor who steps forward and they're kind of a free donor. Yeah, you don't not a pair. Right. So they don't have that recipient that we have to make sure that sure. gets matched, you know, along the way. So this is your free donor to start. So again, that donor would go to recipient A. That recipient A has got that donor who's not a match. So then donor A will go down to recipient B, you know, and on down the line. So and the beauty of these chains is you can kind of break them up. So you can space them out over a few days, a few weeks, a few months, because some donors, maybe it's a lot of husband and wives, you know, will donate to each other. So maybe the wife wants to be the caregiver for the recipient or her husband. So he will get transplanted first. 
And then, you know, she's the next donor in the chain. So she's like, you know, can I wait like a week, you know, to donate so I can kind of take care of him? And so then we can do that because we always want to make sure, you know, their loved one gets transplanted before they donate or at least on the same day. So we can kind of spread these out. And again, We've had chains, you know, that are seven pairs long, 12 pairs long. I've seen so, the photo. Yeah. It's very so, impactful. Amazing. And it's like you can't do 12 transplants or 12 donors all in the same day. You know, we just don't have that many surgeons. <laughs> That's what I imagined. <laughs> so now that makes more sense. So that way we can spread this out again over several weeks or a couple months. And um, so that's given us a lot of luxury to really extend these these chains. And like Dr. Shinstock was saying, with the compatible pairs, you throw a couple extra O donors in there, or O blood type donors, and O blood type donors can donate to any blood type of the recipient. Oh. So they're kind of the gold ticket mm-hmm. as well to make these chains work mm-hmm. um, as well. Okay, so the first thing we need to say is if you're an O blood, uh, then you should maybe consider doing this. <laughs> what what else do you want potential donors, people that are just, you know, I hear this and I think that is maybe something I could do. What do you want to say to them? I mean, I would say that the actual donation process, yeah, you're going through a surgery that you don't need. But, you know, people are only in the hospital for one to two days. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't have to take any extra medicines. They don't really need much extra health care. And after the donation, you know, after they've recovered from the surgery, they can go back to regular life. And Mm -hmm. to be honest, really, their incidence of developing kidney disease themselves is, you know, very low. Uh, so, you, you know, and, and it does not affect your survival, your, your survival in no, life, right? There, there's, there's not any uh, data to suggest that it affects their long-term, you know, patient survival. No. And you do this through the the scope. I mean, there's not a big incision like there used right, to exactly. be. Right. Exactly. I mean, it, it's a what a two-inch incision to get the mm-hmm. kidney out and done with the scope and. I'm not a surgeon, so I can't say say how. It, but it, it is that they're left with a very small scar. Yeah. And what would you say, Kay? Well, and I think too, yeah, getting through the surgery, the recovery typically is is pretty uncomplicated. But the donors who step forward, they need to be healthy. They don't have to be perfect, but they need to be healthy, and they need to be in a good place in their life. You know, we really like to see the donor who's working, who has medical insurance, who has good support from their family or a close friend. And they've really thought about this. It's not just a whim. I saw this on Facebook and, oh, this sounds like a good idea. (laughs) So, you know, we want them to really kind of think about it, really read up on, you know, what does it mean to be a kidney donor? What, you know, does my family know about this? And so we really want people to be in a good place, you know, physically and psychosocially, you know, to go through something like this. Well, it is so great to hear about everything you're doing with regard to kidney transplant. Congratulations to you and your and your whole team. Paired kidney donation and the donor chain. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic nephrologist Dr. Carrie Shinstock and nurse coordinator Ms. Kay Cosberg. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And now here's Vivian Williams. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. Thinking of skipping a flu shot this year? The researcher who leads the effort to find an effective vaccine for the influenza virus strongly urges you to reconsider.
People think, well, it's just the flu, explains Dr. Gregory Poland, head of Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group. But he says in the U.S. alone last year, 80,000 Americans died from influenza and its complications, and that almost a million were hospitalized. That's a huge burden of disease, much of it preventable by flu vaccine. That's why Dr. Poland recommends everyone over the age of six months get a vaccination. Influenza can cause respiratory sinusitis, pneumonia, meningitis, and other complications. For people that have other medical conditions like heart disease, it can lead to a heart attack or a stroke. For diabetics, their diabetes can go out of control, says Poland. He stresses a vaccination shot cannot give you the flu. It also cannot stop every case of it. However, you should still get one. You don't want to wait until you get an infection and disease and then say, well, now I'll treat it, says Dr. Poland. The much-preferred thing recommended by every professional body in the U.S. is getting a flu vaccine every year. Even when it's not 100% effective in preventing symptoms, you're still preventing the major complications. And in other news, pregnancy is a great time to talk about heart health. Dr. Sharon N. Hayes, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says that women should know that they are at risk for heart disease and that pregnancy is a time of increased risk. She says women should know what their risks are and address them and talk to their doctor about what should I be doing? Maybe my blood pressure is a little bit high or maybe my blood pressure medication already. Should I stop it? Should I switch to a different one? But have the conversation. By talking about it, women can learn the best ways to stay heart healthy. Dr. Hayes says to sit down with your family practitioner, internist, or OB and talk about all sorts of health issues, such as making sure that the things you're doing for your heart, like exercise and not smoking, and making sure the medications that you're taking and the diet that you're eating are good for the baby and for the heart. Pregnancy puts a strain on the heart that most healthy hearts can handle, but that strain may unmask underlying conditions. Now, symptoms women may experience during a heart attack include chest pain, pain that radiates to the neck, jaws, or down the arms, or between the shoulder blades, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, sweating, fainting, profound fatigue, and nausea or vomiting. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McCray. If you've noticed some dark spots in your vision or maybe strings that look like cobwebs, you may have what are called eye floaters. They're more common in nearsighted people and also more common as we age. These floaters may drift about when you move your eye and may appear to dart away when you look directly at them. They may be most noticeable when you look at a plain, bright black uh, background like the blue sky or a white wall. So what are floaters? Does it mean that you're dying, which is what I thought the first time I had one, and are they a cause for concern? Here to discuss eye floaters is Mayo Clinic ophthalmologist Dr. Amir Khan. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khan. It's nice to meet you. Thank you, Tom and Tracy. Um, first of all, I would say you probably are not dying. Okay, good. Well, yeah, but she's too young for a floater, isn't she? <laughs> Are they, can you get them at all ages? Or is there a certain age for floaters? There's not a certain age, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, in the more nearsighted people. Uh, they can notice floaters often at an earlier age. So I wouldn't necessarily have an age cutoff for floaters. Um, and what causes it? What are you really experiencing? Most of the time, and this isn't in all cases, but most of the time what the floaters are are bits and clumps of your vitreous, which is a gel substance in the back of the eye. So the inside part of the eye is filled with a jelly. Correct. And these are little 
Chunks of jelly. Flex, <laughs> dust? <laughs> what are they? Chunk is maybe not the right word. <laughs> maybe clump. <laughs> a clump of jelly. Um, so as we age, what is initially a firm gel-like substance begins to liquefy. And as it liquefies, it can contract and break up into bits and pieces. Uh. Those bits and pieces are what you may notice as a floater and what I can see as a floater when I look into your eye. Are they of concern? The floaters themselves are more of a nuisance annoyance type problem, where, as Tracy mentioned, if you look at a blue sky or a white page, they become more noticeable. Where it becomes a concern is if they're associated with something else. For example, as this jelly substance contracts and breaks up into bits and clumps, it pulls away from the retina. The, ret- the retina is like the film in a camera, the back of the eye, what you see with. Correct. Okay. Correct. So as it pulls away from the retina, it can tug on the retina, and that can give you flashing lights. And that tugging can sometimes tear the retina. So if fluid from within the eye gets in underneath that tear, the retina can separate kind of like wallpaper off a wall, and that's a retinal detachment. So we really recommend that anybody who has a new onset of floaters uh, sees their eye care provider for a dilated eye exam to make sure that the retina is intact. Those ones, those floaters would not go away, though. Is that right? If if you've got a detached retina, it's not going to, like, a, usually a floater, you see it, and then it's gone. The floaters that we have from the jelly, the vitreous breaking up into bits and clumps, really don't go away completely either because the back of the eye is kind of a closed space, so they may shrink a little in time and the brain may learn to ignore them a little bit over time. But again, in certain situations, particularly with the lighting, uh, they tend to be more noticeable. In general, when you have a floater, it's not that big of a deal. What can be a cause for concern? Um, if I were to see a whole sudden shower of little specks, almost like little black bugs, and people, patients may say that there's a gnat there or some flies mm-hmm. there, and they try to swat them away, but they're not outside, they're inside their eye, uh, those can be causes for concern. The other thing is not all floaters are clumps of the vitreous jelly. So sometimes if the retina is torn, it can be a broken blood vessel, and those may be blood cells that you're seeing. Also in certain uh, underlying diseases such as diabetes, uh, those people are more prone to getting blood vessels that can break and bleed easily. So that may also be a source of floaters. Any onset of new floaters I think really deserves a, a dilated eye exam. Why are floaters more common in people who are nearsighted? It's probably because the eye, most people are nearsighted, the eye tends to be longer. Front to back or side to side? Uh, Front to back. Okay. That tends to be longer. So the thought is that there might be more traction on the retina because things are stretched a little bit more in the eye. Is there a treatment for them? There really isn't a treatment for floaters. Um, Recently, people have started looking into whether they can laser the floaters. I think the jury is still out on that. Technically, uh, a retina specialist can go inside the eye and remove all of the gel substance, but that has its own inherent risks as well. And for something that is typically more of a, I'd say, nuisance annoyance type issue, we don't recommend doing that. In my mind, there's some concern about breaking those bigger floaters up into more smaller pieces, plus releasing all that energy in the back part of the eye. Is there a way to prevent floaters? Not really. Okay. Not really. Again, this whole process of the vitreous gel liquefying is 
I put it more in the natural aging category. All right. So you, you've told us that if you have floaters for the first time, and in particular if you have multiple ones, it's probably worth a checkup. Tell us about some other changes in vision or sim- eye symptoms that ought to be checked out. You know, in addition to floaters, if you notice an area of your vision is missing, that would be another good reason uh, to get a dilated eye exam. But All right. Reduced field of vision would be Reduced field of vision. Reduced visual acuity. You just can't see as clearly. Um, it may be something simple, like you need to get a new glasses prescription, but again, it could be anything else from cataract or macular degeneration. That's tricky because it happens so gradually that you don't notice what you don't notice. Correct. And oftentimes people don't notice until maybe for some reason they rub one eye and then all of a sudden they're looking with their bad eye and then they're like, oh, when did this happen? Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else we ought to worry about? Um, in terms of the eyes? Yeah, in terms <laughs> Well, we got lots to worry about, but things that ought to prompt one to go see their eye doctor. Um, just in general, I would say um, every few years it's probably reasonable to get an eye exam to measure things like the pressure inside your eye. Some things may be asymptomatic and best caught early, so I think routine eye care is important. All right. See your doctor every three years Sounds or sooner good. if you need it, Very especially good. if you're new to floaters. <laughs> okay. All right. We've been talking about eye floaters with a Mayo Clinic specialist, ophthalmologist Dr. Amir Khan. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Khan. Good to have you on the program. Thank you, too. Well, thanks to better awareness and screening, cancer of the colon and rectum rates have been declining in recent decades overall. But, alarmingly, cancers of the colon and rectum are on the rise in younger adults, kids, uh, adults in their 20s, their 30s, and their 40s. You just kids. said kids. I <laughs> know it. Kids, yep. <laughs> well, this past May, the American Cancer Society changed their recommendation about screening. They now say you should get your first colorectal screening at age 45. That's down from age 50. So why the rise and what can be done about it? Joining us on the phone from Jacksonville, Florida, to discuss is Mayo Clinic hematologist-oncologist, Dr. Pashtun Cassie. Welcome to the program, Dr. Cassie. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Dr. Cassie, thanks for uh, joining us. So overall, rates of cancer of the colon and rectum have been declining? That is true. Uh, indeed, it's one of the few cancers where screening, uh, at least in the late 90s, uh, with the advent of colonoscopy, uh, has been what uh, has allowed for cancer to be caught at an earlier stage. It is one of the few cancers that follows a pattern in terms of a polyp becoming something that is precancerous, that then evolves into cancer over a period of time in the order of years, which allows for uh, an intervention, a screening, colonoscopy or a test uh, that can detect cancer early can prevent it and uh, overall has resulted in the decline. But you've been removing the polyps that would otherwise ultimately turn into cancer. True. And, uh, you know, speaking of screening, while uh, colonoscopy or some form of uh, scope to look inside the actual colon is one of the ways, but there are other tests as well which are relatively non-invasive that can also uh, be employed uh, to help diagnose these cancers early. Why are the numbers rising when it comes to younger adults? You know, that's uh, the most intriguing question right now. This observation was uh, something that was noted earlier last year uh, by research uh, by Siegel and colleagues that was funded by the American Cancer Society. Uh, while indeed you see the uh, decline in the curves in the individuals in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that's attributed, uh, if you look at the decades, uh, it's attributable to a, around the time when colonoscopy and some of these screening interventions were introduced. But what's uh, 
surprising is why individuals in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, you're seeing a rise. So, you know, the millennials or, or some of these other age groups that are born after the 80s, as opposed to somebody who's born in the 50s or 60s, the risk of uh, cancer, uh, depending on the location, uh, was up to fourfold in some instances, which is not yet explained and is an area of ongoing research. Unexplained. Yes, and, you know, um, what's very intriguing is uh, the only thing that is recurrently coming up as a theme, what is very surprising is even though we think of colorectal cancer as uh, one entity or uh, just pretty much simplistically speaking a long piece of tubing, um, embryologically it's derived from different parts of the uh, body, so even the right side of the colon is, is a completely different organ when it comes to comparing it to the left side of the colon. And uh, a pattern that has emerged is uh, it seems like it's the rectal cancers and the cancers on the left side of the colon that are more often being seen in individuals who are diagnosed with the young onset colorectal cancer. Now, we know because they're derived from different parts of the embryo, the right side of the colon is different biologically in terms of mutations and patterns that we see as compared to the left side of the colon and the rectum. That being a recurring theme uh, that was initially noted in uh, the study by the American Cancer Society. Our group at Mayo, we published our findings last month as well, and again, the same theme, pretty much uh, the incidence of uh, colon as well as rectal cancer, more so the rectal cancer, was uh, increasingly being seen in the individuals in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who, you know, by definition would not have met the screening guidelines. Now, granted, the recent guidelines have led to the age being moved from 50 to 45 for what we call the average risk individual. That, by definition, you know, those individuals would not have met any criteria for screening. So often the problem is because they're not getting screened, by the time they're diagnosed with colorectal cancer, it's often advanced. You know, most young adults don't think that they're going to get colon cancer, but what are the symptoms that they ought to look for? Going back to uh, where the cancer originates, whether it's in the rectum versus the left side of the colon versus the right side, often some of these symptoms are, are not necessarily uh, something that one would consider uh, a, a cancer as a diagnosis. Uh, bleeding is one thing, uh, and especially with current uh, situation with them not meeting screening guidelines, if somebody has recurrent ongoing bleeding, that would be one thing to consider. Uh, unexplained weight loss, changes in the uh, bowel habits uh, in terms of constipation or changes in the caliber of stool or uh, if things are persistently getting worse and are unexplained, it is definitely worthwhile bringing it to the attention of the doctor. Now, often bleeding is not necessarily profound, especially if the cancer originated on the right side. If uh, on routine blood work uh, or a visit to a primary care physician, especially in a male, if anemia, which is low blood counts, uh, that should always uh, signal a red flag uh, because anemia, especially in males and even in females, uh, in addition to menstrual blood losses, uh, is often bleeding from the gut unless proven otherwise. So that those would be signs to look for. Uh, and obviously in advanced cases, it can present as uh, abdominal pain and Liver and lung tend to be the common sites of metastases, so often somebody gets a scan for some other reason and they pick up these spots which then, uh, when biopsied, are consistent with somebody having colon cancer. But otherwise, uh, you want to start screening uh, with a colonoscopy at age 45, or are there other methods that you could use if you didn't want to do colonoscopy? There are other methods. Uh, one of the recent uh, advances has been the development of what we call a stool uh, DNA-based testing. That is uh, something that uh, Mayo was
was involved in in terms of development. In addition to that, tool blood-based uh, assays, uh, they're not great, but they're at least uh, an alternative. Uh, because often what's been an issue is, even though we know a colonoscopy can diagnose and also treat these cancers or lesions early, uh, the challenge has been the uptake of colonoscopy. Uh, nobody is too enthused about drinking uh, the PrEP for several days. Uh, or Because of that, even in most states of the United States, it's anywhere between 50% to a two-thirds where uh, people are getting colonoscopy at the recommended ages. Uh, so it's not one of the most popular of procedures. Uh, and the goal has been to at least uh, take that up to at least 80%. And with these newer tests being available, uh, that is one way of uh, increasing awareness and uptake amongst uh, individuals who consider these testing. Finally, there's been a shift in the way that uh, ca- uh, colon cancer treatment happens. Chemo, then surgery, then chemo again. Is that correct? So in terms of both for uh, advanced cases as well as uh, rectal cancer specifically, one paradigm shift that is uh, happening as we speak is instead of uh, doing what we call mop-up chemo afterwards, moving it before uh, surgery when the person is uh, in in better shape and hasn't had any surgery. That is one paradigm shift that has happened. One exciting advancement that has happened for our patients with uh, metastatic cancer is immunotherapy is something that uh, was not something that uh, helped patients with colorectal cancer, but a small fraction of them who have what we call uh, Lynch syndrome-associated colon cancer, or uh, there's a term called mismatch-repair-deficient colon cancer, which... uh, represent about 4 to 5% of metastatic cancer patients. Now, granted, it's a small number, but for those individuals, uh, immunotherapy, both as single or combination, has uh, led to dramatic uh, responses, unprecedented results that we never saw before. Uh, that uh, has now been uh, granted approval, uh, and it's part of guidelines, so yet another option that, for at least that subset of patients uh, uh, the other advancement that I would like to point out is uh, this is a classic disease. Uh, it's a poster child for individualized therapy where uh, even the right side of the colon is not similar to the left side. Even the mutations define all these different subsets of cancers where we have more targets. So in addition to the traditional chemotherapy, radiation therapy, now you have uh, targeted therapies and as well as now immunotherapy making its way. So treatment is definitely individualized and even in metastatic cancer patients, uh, like you're pointing out towards the role of surgery, with the right combination of chemotherapy with uh, some form of surgery, including liver surgery, if it's few metastases, as well as lung surgery, uh, we are trying to cure uh, patients with uh, colorectal cancer, even if they are stage four, which was not an option a decade ago. Well, it's good to know you, that you've got those uh, new, better options available, but the key here is to recognize the fact that you can get colon cancer even when you're in your 20s, 30s, or 40s, and make sure you get screened starting at age 45. Absolutely, and, and for certain uh, races uh, in terms of uh, African Americans, that, uh, that age is even earlier. Dr. Pashtun Kasi, hematologist-oncologist at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. 
Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.